0: Need to be here and uh, when Will invited me to come speak about with I said I have no idea what you're talking about with you're talking about with that's a preposition that's not a theme and then he said well what we mean is and then I thought well I, I, I do want to talk about that um, I'm really pleased to hear that many of you how many of you have read the book with or been around people reading the book with in the last year four of you that's good Okay, five, it's about to five now. So a number of you have read it, studied it, and you've heard about it in the halls, and I think it's a great topic, and I'm happy to, happy to join you in that. So let me just say it very quickly in case you are a newcomer to this. Uh, there are different ways to think about life and God, and one of them is life under God, and that's God is a lawgiver, a taskmaster, tells you what to do, frowns when you don't, life under God. Then there's life from God, which is God gives you life and then he gives you abundant life and, and, and you abound and you're prosperous and all your problems go away and God is the giant gift giver. That's life from God. And then there's life for God in which God gives us tasks. He's a mission commander and he tells us to go out and do things and he's pleased when we do them and if we exhaust ourselves in the process, that's okay because God's the mission commander, and you, you fulfilled your mission. And you've been saying for the last year or so that none of those are quite right. There's some truth in all of them. There's some Bible verses you can cite, but essentially, the Christian life is a life with God. And I want to uh, do three things in each talk, today, tomorrow morning, and Sunday morning, the main talks. I want to talk about... Uh, what the Bible actually says about this, and so we'll look at Romans 5 and 6 and 8. For those of you who are theologians, the term I'm going to use is union with Christ. What does it mean to be united to Christ? And we'll look at the text, and then we'll apply it personally, spiritually, which your pastor started to do last night. And then we'll also look at it publicly. We'll have a public, that is to say, outward facing to the world Application. So my first text is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We'll read 5, 6 to 8, 9, 10 a little bit later, but I'm going to start with 5, of, chapter 5 of Romans, verses 1 and 2. Would you listen to God's word? I'm going to punch a pronoun. Don't be surprised, okay? Not just a, not just a preposition. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of God. Let's pray for a moment one more time. Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. Perfect my words. Help us to meditate well now and later on what you would have for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the most basic truth in Romans chapter 5 is this having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, or since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is not our natural condition. And our natural condition, as Romans 5 points out, and we'll see it just a little bit later, our natural condition is that we're weak, we're enemies, we're hostile, we're we're not in relationship, we're, we're not reconciled. We need to be reconciled to God because we've been estranged from God. That's what Romans chapter five says. And so, uh, since something is amiss, something is wrong in our relationship with God, we need something to set it right. And having been justified, that is to say, declared righteous by trusting in Christ, we have peace with God. Now, when I say peace, most people in America um, Think of feelings of peace, like that not good old eagle song, I've got a peaceful, easy feeling, because I know you won't let me down because I've already got my feet on the ground. I mean, I already expect nothing of you, and therefore I've got peace because I have no expectations. I'm, I'm not worried. I have peace. Or, or people say things like, well, you know, I'm at peace with my decision, which means I feel good about it, which is just a subjective declaration. You may feel very good about doing something dreadful, but I, I feel good about it. And so that's really not what we're talking about here. When we look at peace in the Bible, the first, the first sense is peace with God, which is, which is an object of reality that changes objective things, like your status with God. And when I say your status with God, I do mean you plural. In fact, it's worth looking at the pronouns of the Bible when you read. If, if you walk through the book of Romans, one thing you'll notice is that in, in Romans 2, for example, in Romans 3, for example, there's lots of you talk. You who are sinners. And then in chapters 3 and 4, there's lots of he talk, and that's talk about what Jesus Christ, Son of God, did, what he did for us. And then in chapter 5, it moves over to we talk by which Paul means you and I and and the whole body of Christ, we, we have peace with God. Not just I, it's not simply my personal subjective peace. We have peace with God. We have joy. We have this as an object of reality because our status with God is secure. Can I just ask you a question here? Is there a major college nearby that has basketball teams or something like that? that? Is that the case? I got it. Have, have they ever won a basketball championship, NCAA? Have they ever won? I grew up in North Carolina part of the time, so... So, I, you know, North Carolina is really bad this year. But if you're a North Carolina fan, what do you say? You say, well, you know, they, we, they can't take... No matter how bad we are this year, they can't take away the national championship, right? Right? Did you ever say that Kentucky never has a really bad team, but they have some not great teams, right? When the team's not great, they say, well, you know, nothing can take away the glory days three years ago, five years ago, nine years ago, when we won the championship, right? And that's an objective established reality. And in a similar vein, no matter what we do, not that we're lawless, mind you, but no matter what we do, Nothing can ruin the peace we have with God because it is a past accomplished event. You can't take away a past championship properly won. Don't tell the Astros. You can't take away a properly won championship. It's objective. It happened. Much more profoundly, you can never take away the peace we have with God, which is an objective reality. Our feelings come and go. I may feel close to God, I may not feel God close to God, but I have, you have, we have, Paul says, peace with God. This comes from Christ. When he meets people who are troubled, he says things like, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Remember that? He says that. Another place he says, my peace I leave with you, peace I give you, my peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, do not be afraid, because I give you peace. Jesus gives peace, he accomplishes peace. And that gives us, verse 2, access to God by which we stand. Here's what it says. Therefore, through him, we have obtained access by God into this grace in which we stand. Meaning, we have the freedom to take our stand. Not stand up. But take our stand. As in, I'm going to take a stand here. And you may disagree with me, but this is where I stand. I declare my convictions to you. That kind of stand. But now in this case, we're not taking our stand in boldness of our convictions. We're taking our stand in God's presence without fear. Because we have peace with God. Now my wife is with me today. I'm always glad when she comes with me. We drove over together. We listened to some books. We talked. We had a nice little drive over. We'll drive back. My wife Doesn't do as much driving as I do. I usually drive most of the way. And I'm going to tell a story about my wife as a driver. It was a rainy day. And we have children. And one of our children went through the Lagaria stage. You know what that stage is? Logos means word. Ria means flowing unstoppably. (laughs) So Lagaria is when a child talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks. Who's had a child like that? Who was a child like that? Alright, so we had, we had a child, four or five years old, and she's talk, 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 and we're going down the road on a rainy day at rush hour, and there was a police car that made, you know how police cars like to show off how well they stop? You know what I mean? Well, they'll stop for 14 seconds at a stop sign, just this is how it's done. they <laughs> They'll no rolling through stop signs. And so this foolish police car decided to stop a long time, and my wife's going down the hill, and the daughter's talking in the rain, it's rush hour, and she taps the brakes, and she slides into the the police car. The police officer was not happy. And he wrote her, because it was the third time he'd been hit that month, because he stops for 14 seconds. And she went to traffic court. Wrote her a ticket. You're going to traffic court, ma'am. And so my wife is one of the most law-abiding people you could ever imagine. And she got to traffic court, and she she saw those people that weren't that were there for other reasons. The people with you know tattoos on their head and marks of chains on the side of their face. And she was properly afraid. I mean, she'd never been with people like this. And it kind of spooked her. And when she went to appear before the judge, she was ready with their plea, which is, in Missouri, you can be innocent or guilty or guilty with an explanation. And she was going for that one. I did it, but if you knew my daughter, and how much she talks. <laughs> and when she got before the judge, my wife, who's a very capable speaker, went like that. And then, then a a moth came out of her mouth and then a cloud of dust and then a choking sound and I said, your honor what my wife wants to say is guilty with an explanation and she planned to tell you now the judge said, I understand I see your record and I'm going to give you as much leniency as the law allows it was over in 25 seconds tap, away she goes Now, in human conduct, we would never see that judge again, and we would be done. If we did see him, it would be immaterial. But God's a different kind of a judge. And when God exonerates us and says, not guilty, he then strikes up a relationship and says, stand with me, be with me, live your life in my presence. So if we were in a law court where God's the judge, after acquitting us, he would say, would you like a bite of my quesadilla? And here in my my record, it shows that you're quite a singer, and and we've got an octet. I understand you can sing three parts, three women's parts, and would you like to join my group? And I also notice here that that you're a a fly fisher woman, and um, I've, I've got a fishing hole. And and the judge would strike up a relationship. Can you imagine that? That's actually what God does. When God gives us peace with him, when we have been justified by faith, we have access to God, and we stand in his presence, or we stand with him, or we live life with him. That's what the Christian faith is. That's what the gospel signifies. So what happens then? God acquits us, and says, back to the traffic court, someone has already paid your penalty, that someone is Jesus, and Hebrews says, let us now approach with confidence the throne of grace, let us draw near that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, we say, your pastor said yesterday, we can pray. And we can do this directly, we can stand before God, we don't need an intermediary, we don't need a saint, we don't need an image, we don't need a prayer book, we don't need a guide, which doesn't mean there are no guides, but we don't need one. We can stand in God's presence. Now, the question I was meditating on this, and actually, I shifted my talk a little bit during the during the uh, testimony and music time because there was a book here which I read a little part of. Nobody claimed it. Will brought this book, Thoughts for Young Men, and nobody claimed it. So I thought, well, this is then my book because it was right beside me, and. And I was just leafing through it again, and it it really, um, it seemed like what I wanted to say. And on pages 46 and 53, it says this, thoughts for young men. Seek to become acquainted with our Lord Jesus Christ. And on page 53, it says, determine as long as you live to make the Bible your guide and advisor. This is a 100-year-old book that's still in print. Actually, it's more than 100 years. It's more like 140 or something. And, you know, anytime a book's still in print for 140 years, it's probably a good book. And I thought, this is right. I mean, if, if you want to stand in God's presence, you know the best thing you can do is actually become acquainted with our Lord Jesus Christ. And the way you do that is by reading the Bible. If you want to know how to live in God's presence, you've got to know who God is and the best way to find that out is by reading four books called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And sincere, I cannot say it any more sincerely. If you want to live with God, then read the account of the life of God on earth, Jesus, whose name is Emmanuel. And if you haven't read the Gospels lately, read them slowly and carefully and ask, what is this man like? What is this God-man like? And then, alongside that, not only to get to know what he's like, but to make the Bible your guide and your advisor, meaning it's not just to know what he is like, but to be like him, to be conformed to him, more about that on Sunday. But again, the big idea is we're able to stand in God's presence, we have access by this grace in which we stand. So if I could use another illustration. When I was in grad school, I had the privilege of going to one of the America's you know, great universities and magnificent research university and, and these big universities have a lot of resources, have a lot of professors, and, and they kind of, there's almost more professors than they need, and they can do research and switch fields and whatever. As long as you keep publishing and you're famous, we're fine. And as I'm working on my dissertation, I found out that there was a professor whose work in my field was absolutely seminal, and he wasn't in my department. He'd moved, he'd, he was tired of the subject he wrote this great book on. He went to write a great book in another field. And and so he wasn't in our department at all. But I found out he was there. And as soon as I found out, I ran over toward his office. I thought, I'm going to go meet Professor Morgan, the great Professor Morgan who wrote this seminal book. And, and as I'm running over, I'm thinking, um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to reread his book and make notes about the book, and ask him the most incisive questions. Since you said on page 143, da 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 da, the implications would appear to be such and such, and I'll dazzle him in my brilliance, and he'll want to spend time with me, and give me his secrets. But alas, when I got there, the secretary said, "Well, it's." Uh, so again, I was going to prepare for this meeting for three weeks. You understand what I'm saying? When I got there, his secretary said, "Well." He's in right now and it's his office hours, so just just go on in. And and to make matters worse, his door was ajar, and he, and he he looked at me and waved at me and, and forced me to come in. And I hadn't read the book in nine months. I had no all I, what was I gonna do? I was gonna stand there and say, Your book is awesome. <laughs> and he's gonna say, This is what you have for me? I mean, how did you get in here anyway? And I got to tell you, I never wanted the ground to open up more in all my life. You wrote a great book. I wanted to run away because I had the sense that I did not belong in the presence of this great man. Now, here's the gospel. There is someone greater than Professor Morgan. You do not belong in his presence, but you can stand in his presence because of the work of Christ. Because Jesus has justified you, because God has justified you and welcomed you into his presence, you can stand worthy or not. Jack Miller said, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Now you can run with that in false directions, but it's fundamentally true. Your standing before God does not rest on what you've done, but on what Christ has done and the path he has opened for you. That's the first big thing I want to tell you. That's what Romans says. And it digs into it in verses uh, five, chapter five, verses six to eight. If you would just follow along with me, he, he wants us to be, He wants us to surely know how very much he loves us and welcomes us into his presence. And this is what he says in verse six of chapter five of Romans. And I'm reading the NIV this time because I like the translation better. Which is not subjectivism. I do teach Greek, so I'm allowed to say that. Okay. So here we go. You see, at just the right time, when we were powerless, or weak, it could be translated, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, although for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if you look at this passage, you see how God describes himself, he says, or how he describes us. He says we're weak, in verse 6, we're powerless, then he says we're ungodly, and then he says we're sinners. So those three descriptions, and God is saying to us essentially this, I know that, and my love is greater than that, and the work of Christ is greater than that. We were powerless, verse 6. We were ungodly, verse 6. We were sinners, verse 8. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And this demonstrates love of God. Please hear me. It does not say demonstrated the love of God. It says demonstrates. Meaning Jesus most certainly did demonstrate his love, past tense, his love was demonstrated on the cross and in the resurrection, but it, still, it is still being demonstrated. Jesus still demonstrates his love for us by granting us access to him at all times. And again, if you ask me for the practical application, my most practical application is, is, is just what this book said. Just read the Bible in Jesus' presence and say, Lord, tell me what you're like. Show me what you're like. Make me more like you. Help me walk with you. It can be, it can be absolutely that simple and, and that beautiful as well. What, what do we mean when we say Jesus' love is demonstrated or God demonstrates his love? John Stott said this in one place. He said, the degree of love is measured partly by the costliness of the gift. That's the easy part. And then he says... And partly by the worthiness of the beneficiary. So on both counts, the gift is supreme. The costliness of the gift, God's own son. The worthiness of the beneficiary, weak, sinners, ungodly. Made in God's image, to be sure, but weak and ungodly. And and these statements, God demonstrates his love. It says in verse 8, It is a a death that is for us. It is substitutionary, verse 8. It is by his blood, verse 9. It is saving us from God's wrath, verse 9. It is an act he fulfilled while we were still his enemies. While we're still his enemies. Now the word for this, verse 10, 11, says that we're reconciled to God. And Will, I, I just need you for a second. You have a pen right there. Can, you know, if they hate, just you can toss it to me. This is your best pen, right? Please, it's your best pen. Did it, co- did it cost over $100? Just shy. Just shot, about $90? All right. Um, you like this pen. Your mother gave it to you, right? Now, what would happen relationally if, if I took I'm not going to break it because the ink would spray on my shirt, which is kind of new. So. <laughs> What would happen if I broke this pen? What would happen to my relationship with Will? It is a gift from his mother, sentimental value. His mother um, gave it from the family treasury. His, her father gave it to her. And I break the pen. What's going to happen to our relationship? Strained that would be one word for it. Yes, what would happen if I broke this pen and sort of ran out of the building? Um, what would happen next time I saw will? What would I do next time I saw will after i we 're not good friends we haven 't known each other long enough, but I like you, and you seem to like me, but you like everybody, so it doesn 't count. <laughs> what would happen? What would happen next time I saw will I broke the heirloom pen? What would happen? What would I do? I would probably run away. If I saw him you know at that shopping center where I'm staying, the Origin Hotel and and all the rest um, and I saw him at that store over there I would run, I would duck into another store wouldn't I? Wouldn't I? Wouldn't you? Overcome with guilt? That's what we do with God. But now What if Will, who's observant and a relational person, saw me duck in? What would he want to do? If he were an ordinary person, he would want to accost me and say, what on earth did you do? I invited you to my church, and you broke my heirloom, and and so forth. But here's the thing. In God's economy, we have done something worse than break his pen. We have broken his world. We've damaged ourselves. And we have run away, and then God has pursued us. A broken pen, or, I'm, a, I'm an academic, so a book. Can I borrow your book, Doc? Sure. But can you take good care of it? It's a, The author signed it. He's a friend of mine. He died five years ago. I'm trusting you with this. And the person drops it in the mud. Or... Somebody bars my car and they wreck it and they bring it back with the bumper falling off. Any of these activities would cause severe damage in relationship, but when God reconciles himself to us, Romans 5 says, when God reconciles us, uh, us to himself, he's the wronged party and he woos us. He says, I love you more than I ever loved that pen. And that book matters, but our relationship matters more. And you know that car you wrecked? I have insurance. Come on, let's be friends. Now, in that's the subjective life. And then in the external world, a couple things happen. The first thing that happens if we're living with God in peace, in reconciliation with God, the first thing that happens is you're willing to be reconciled to other people. Now, probably somebody here, somebody here might have read. The piece I published that got me the most hate mail of anything I ever wrote, and it's a piece about professional football, and it was right, you know, a few months after the word came out that 110 out of 111 professional football players whose brains were examined had chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a serious brain degenerative disease, and I'd been thinking about it for a long time, and I went ahead and published it. And uh, some people liked it and some people hated it. But there was, a, there was a football coach that I had mentored in St. Louis. And the article hurt him and he didn't like something I said in the article. He's a football coach. And I wrote a piece about football. And I heard from one of his friends sort of accidentally that he was pretty upset with me. And therefore, I said, I know how to get a hold. I know how to reach him. We hadn't talked for a couple of years five, four years, but I know how to get a hold of him, and I called him up, and we had a delightful long lunch in which we agreed more than we thought, but we disagreed, and we were closer friends than ever as a result afterward. Why did I do that? Because that's what God does with me. It's what God does with you. If you walk with God, if you walk in peace with God, you are striving, in other words, my friends, to live at peace with others. If God has reconciled you to himself while you were sinners, while you're weak, while you're ungodly, while you, weren't, while you weren't worth much to him, then you should seek reconciliation to the people around you. I do some discipleship um, with a Center for Faith and Work in St. Louis that I started not too long ago. And we do discipleship with business leaders. And I had a conversation yesterday with a man who said... As a businessman, my tendency when someone performs poorly at work is simply to ask the question, how fast can I get him out of here? But as a Christian, I realize that I need to see if I can bring him up to speed, if I can coach him, train him, make him a valuable member of our team. And if he's a good person, he'll never fit in my team, then it is my obligation to find another good job for him in our corporation. Now, I call that living out your faith. I call that, that statement, that, that business leader who understood his worst tendency to just discard people who don't work all that well, he understood that was his worst tendency. He understood, he saw that Jesus doesn't treat him that way, and so he's not going to treat the people around him that way. That's letting with show. If I can stick with business for a minute, um, I wrote a book about, you know, came out about a year ago and wrote it for quite a while on work, and in that book about work, one of the things I noticed, they interviewed maybe three, four hundred people for the book, and mostly Christians, not all, but maybe two-thirds were Christians, and one of the things I noticed about the people I interviewed was that over and over and over again, when I asked them the question, what do you do, they began with two words. I just, I just, I just, I just deliver bread. I just hand out towels. I just move grain from here to there. I said, Alex, not his name, you don't just move grain from here to there. You move millions of tons of grain all over the planet. I talk to CEOs, CFOs, all the O's you can think of, and they start with I trust exactly like the person who hands out towels at the gym, exactly like the person who delivers, who drives a bread truck for $14 an hour. And what I I think is behind this is, is an idea that people have that is that I am with God, I am with God when I'm reading the Bible, when I'm praying and when I'm in church, And at work I earn money and God is no longer with me. And that is false. If you have peace with God generically, you have peace with God at work. Unless you're doing dishonest work and and I'm just going to say I'm going to assume that you're not. I had a conversation with a young woman uh, a few years ago and she was absolutely convinced that her work was meaningless. She finished college with an economics degree and math and you know, very high grades and was wooed by a Fortune 500 company. And her job, when she first worked, was to watch the sales of women's sweaters and sweater dresses and dresses for sort of kind of plus-size middle-aged women. She was an athletic 24-year-old. And, and to watch the sales and to just reduce the prices a little bit to get them to move, uh, to get product from getting stale on the shelf. She hated it. And, and she had a boss who was wise. And, and he said to her, Libby, I want you to go and stand in the store. I want you to just stand by the sweaters that you're marketing, that you're setting the price points for. And she stood there for two hours. And after about an hour and a half, several women came by and uh, they started doing what wise people do, they turned the sweaters inside out to see how they were made, and they pulled on the, on the, on the garment to, to see what kind of cloth uh, the sweaters and the dresses were made of, and they, they loved the materials, and they loved the workmanship, and they were talking about them, and they said, you know, these are, these are good sweaters at a good price, and I would buy three of these garments if I could afford them, but I can only buy two. And Libby knew that she'd actually made it possible for for them to buy the garments at all because she'd reduced the prices. And she said to me, "This, this was an epiphany. God spoke to me at this moment, and I realized that my responsibility is not to sell garments that I would wear or that I would like. My job is to sell garments to help people buy good garments at a good price that are good for them, garments that they like. And she was getting very close to something Somebody said some years ago, and I'll try to um, find my quotation here. Uh, He said, If you ask the question, where do you love your neighbors yourself? The The answer is probably at work. Probably at work. At work, you have the most resources, you spend the most time, you have the most training, and you have the biggest team. Probably at work. And Jesus said, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will say, when? We don't remember that. They'll say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? And he will say, as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. You're serving Christ. If you're giving food to the hungry, yes, driving a bread truck, yes. If you're bringing water to the thirsty, if you're a plumber, you're bringing water to the thirsty. If you're clothing the naked, putting a roof over the head, fixing the roof, light fixtures, you name it. If you're doing anything to care for the sick, the lonely, The marginalized, the imprisoned, prison can have many forms. If you're doing any of these things in your work, God is with you, whether you know it or not. Please know it, know it. God is with you, Jesus sees it, Even if you don't see what you're doing, Jesus does. He is with you, guiding you and directing you, even when it it seems all but impossible, all but invisible. So uh, tonight at supper, we were talking about boys. I have a three-year-old grandson he is, he is a dynamo. You could light up a small city with the energy he burns just hitting things for no reason. <laughs> and it doesn't wear out till they're like 11, 12, or 13, right? And so I was with somebody, I won't say who it was, maybe one of your pastors, I don't know. And, and there seemed to be some boys that are maybe, you know, third grade and fifth grade. And it reminded me of when I was in fourth grade. When I was in fourth grade, I led my school in being put out in the hall. <laughs> I was not the worst boy. There was a boy who was clearly worse than I was. He would have burned the school down if they put him in the hall. I sat there and bore my punishment. I was a naughty boy. My goal in fourth grade was to make everybody laugh. That was my goal. And by the end of the first day, I was separated from all my friends. By the end of the first week, I was in the back corner and by the end of the first month, I was in the back corner, surrounded by the three best girls in the, in the class, just there. And my teacher, in retrospect, was almost, almost certainly a Christian. We, we read the Bible and we prayed when it was marginal to do so. It was, you could do it, but it was shaky. We read the Bible and prayed every day. And when I was in grad school, I... Um, I wrote her a letter. And the letter went like this Mrs. Bearer, that is her name. Mrs. Bearer, I am writing to tell you how much I appreciate what you did for me in fourth grade. I was a naughty boy. You put me in a corner surrounded by the best girls in the school. You berated me. You told me I wasn't living up to my potential. You gave me C's I did not deserve. And I write to thank you for it. Because I moved the next year, and I was afraid to be quite so naughty, and I accidentally got straight A's, and it felt so good to have the punishment removed that I've kept it up ever since. I'm getting a PhD now. And I got a letter back about a month later, and it said this. Dear Mr. Doriani, thank you for writing a letter to Mrs. Bearer. She would have been delighted to receive your letter. She died two months ago she never knew but god knows i i have to imagine she prayed over me this naughty boy she would always shake her for danny you are not living up to your potential i figured she said that to everybody she said it to me so much i just assumed that she just that's what she said She never knew, just like, you know, the math teacher doesn't know that that child who sat with her head down designed the bridge that he drives over every day, and that that art teacher who knew that kid had scribbling skills designed a building as an architect today that she admires every day. But God knows, God sees, God knows what we're doing with him and in his presence. And, and I urge you with all that's in me to view with as a fact, you're justified by grace and you have access to God, you have peace with God, personally, objectively, soteriologically, if I can use that word, with regard to salvation and It changes your relationships. If you have walked with Christ, who's so kind and loving to those who wronged him, then you should show that by being reconciled to others who have wounded you. And if you really walk with Christ, you know that he walks with you. His name is Emmanuel. He is always with you. And so I urge you to set your mind on the ways in which you can be with Christ at work even if you don't see it, using your position, your expertise, your energy, your passion. Sure, your desire for money, but you're serving people. You're serving people. You're not just. You're not just. You're loving your neighbors yourself, and you're walking with God. Let's pray together for a minute. Father, I pray that you would grant us the joy of of knowing more and more what it means to live with you and to live with you through your saving work and through your word and through prayer. And, and Lord, I ask that you would teach us more and more to recognize how much we live with you all the time. Even when we're not about spiritual activities, not at church, not praying, not holding hands with somebody we love. So Lord, give us greater awareness that we live our lives with you And with your smiling, receiving, loving presence. In your name we ask it. Amen.